Amen. That's uh, refreshing. As we think about this season that we're in, Advent, uh, it's here. And, you know, it just the year just flew by, and we're here. Why do we do Advent every year? This time between Thanksgiving and Christmas, why do we do it? Well, perhaps you're like me. For one, I enjoy the season. It's fun, isn't it? There's things that make you feel good. There's things to enjoy. But sometimes we can waver back and forth between on one end that, and on the other end the, well, it comes and goes, doesn't it? And there's all, sometimes we just get cynical over the excess and all the stuff and like, wow, there's so much to do. I feel like I'm busy all season long and then it's January and like, where, where did that go? And we sort of waver around with all this, don't we? What, what about Advent? Why do we do it? Well, Advent's one of those seasons where we can actually, rather than run from the things that hurt, rather than run from our sin, rather than run from the, the pain of loss that we experience this time of year, rather than run from that, it's actually an opportunity for us to turn head on and face it. And then... <laughs> See and rejoice in our glorious Savior. That's what Advent is for. That's why we do it. To cultivate the longing for Christ. Because we forget, don't we? We forget how much we need him. So That's why we do this. Now this season of Advent, these next several weeks leading up to Christmas, we're actually going to stay in Isaiah 9. The whole Advent season. So if you have your Bibles, you can be turning there now to Isaiah 9. But we're going to stay there, but we're going to look at that passage through the four, the four different lenses of the four names that are given to the Messiah who is promised, that child who is promised to us. This Sunday, we're going to look, gaze at the Savior through the lens of him, him being the wonderful Counselor. So follow along with me. I'm actually going to back up and read a few verses at the end of chapter 8 and then flow right into the first seven verses of chapter 9. This is God's Word, starting in chapter 8, verse 19. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when, they, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the latter time he has made more glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, You have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. 
For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray now and ask him to guide us through this as we work through this passage together. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you did shine light into our darkness. Your word is light. Your son, Jesus, is light. May we hold him high. May his light shine into our hearts now as we Study your word together as we sit under it. Shape us, Lord, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. You know those uh, random facts or bits of information that you just sort of learn along the way through life in really interesting ways, and they just sort of stick with you? I'm sure you've got something that's just random that you've always just stuck with you, right? I've got one of those random facts (laughs) that I learned, actually, I remember as a child, I was off at camp one summer, and they wanted to teach us about how amazing the human eye is, right? And so they say, actually, and this is maybe, you may know this, you may not know this random bit of information, but did you know at nighttime, there's a big blind spot in the middle of your vision? It's true. (laughs) They told us that as kids, and we're like, what? Ah, no way. And so they say, all right, we're going to go out into the woods over here, uh, take a bunch of kids out in the woods, what could go wrong? Yeah. So they take us out, and they're chaperones, of course, and we're all, they line us up, actually, facing each other in two lines, so where we're about far enough apart where the other person that we're looking across at, their head's about that big. And they say, all right, now look straight across, it's dark, right? There's maybe a little bit of moonlight, but we look across, and, right, and they say, all right, look directly at the person across from you, right at their head, and they say, what do you see? In the dark, there's actually that blind spot. We couldn't see their head. It was like you had to look a little bit to the side to actually see it. It was interesting. It was fascinating. And it always stuck with me. Now, I know at nighttime, there's a little blind spot. And it's because of rods and cones in our eyes. And I'm not going to go into all the details of that. But basically, there's cones in the middle of your retina. And they work. They need a lot of light. And they process color. And the rods are everywhere else. They process low light, but it's black and white. So there's a blind spot in your night vision. <laughs> and the brain actually fills in that gap with inf- the surrounding information. Now, that's really inconvenient if you're walking through a dark room at night and you're looking at the floor so you don't step on anything, but right in the middle of that blind spot is a little Lego. And you step on it barefoot, and it's like a 9.5 out of 10 on the pain scale. It hurts. It produces the... The gloom of anguish <laughs> as you're trying not to cry out how much that hurts. What if that, in that blind spot it's not just a Lego? What if it's something more spiritually destructive? What could it be? What could be falling into our blind spot that we don't see sometimes? Perhaps an addictive tendency that we're in denial of a hot temper that we only let out in certain settings, a self-focus, a fear of rejection, a fear of missing out, 
Cultural Christianity, subtle self-righteousness masked by good intentions, materialism, where, need, where wants become needs. What's in the blind spot for us? You can, can you see that this blind spot that we actually have with our actual eyes also points to the fact that we have a spiritual blind spot if we're functioning according to our own counsel. How often are we functionally stumbling around in the darkness of our own counsel, thinking we see clearly, only to step into something much worse than a, piece, than a Lego piece, because we didn't realize there was a blind spot in the middle of our gaze. We didn't know that we were just filling in the gaps with what's around us, the counsel of the world, the counsel of self, the counsel of cultural Christianity, the counsel of that first lie that our first parents believed when they thought, hmm, maybe God is holding out on us. Hmm, maybe, why is he not letting us eat of that fruit? And the serpent breathed that lie and we believed it. And we thought, maybe we can figure this out without God. Thanks God, nice try, but I think we can do this. And ever since then, we've been trying to live by our own counsel. But God graciously pursued us in the darkness of our own counsel, piercing light into darkness, sending the promised child as the wonderful counselor to shine light on our desperate need of him, even when we don't see it. Now, we find these two opposing themes of light and darkness in this passage, and it's going to serve us well as we work through this passage together. We're going we're gonna to look at the darkness of our own counsel and the light of the wonderful counselor. That's going to serve sort of as a guide for us as we work through this passage together. So let's think about this for a minute. The, the counsel that leads to darkness, what does it look like? Well, notice how chapter 9 starts. There's a reason I backed up and read a few verses in, at the end of chapter 8. Chapter 9 starts out with this, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. This gloominess, this darkness, it, but it starts with this word but, like there's, a, there's something that came before that, there's something that flows out of it, it's almost like it came mid-thought, and if you know that chapters and verses aren't inspired, it's interesting to actually read God's word without the chapter and verse designations. So we back up a little bit, it flows right out of chapter 8, the light comes into the darkness and the gloom. But how did the darkness come? Where did the gloom come from? What is it like? And what counsel led to that place? Well, I began in verse 19, where it says there, when they, and it's actually referring to they is God's people. When they say to you, inquire of the mediums and necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Now, this is God's people but perhaps in name only here are these that are being described. Because they're going not to their God, they're going to mediums and necromancers. These are the folks that will talk to the dead on behalf of the living. Now that's interesting because it's almost like, it's, it's sort of like someone on the outside, like, a, like an alien has landed in Israel and is looking around and like, hey, these people, they say they have this powerful, almighty, holy, righteous, just God but why are they going over here to these mediums and necromancers? 
Shouldn't they go to their God? What? I don't get it. Must not be that mighty of a God. Isn't it interesting how the things we run to can actually say a lot about how we, what we think about our God, the message that we put out to the world. Now, I haven't gone to any mediums or necromancers, and I don't know if any of you have found any of those or gone to them. If you have, we can talk later about that. But what other things do we go to for counsel? You know, the, uh, there's, there's probably a lot of things we could actually name if, we're, if we sit and think about it for a minute. Can I just offer one? And I think it actually makes chirps and muttering sounds and various other noises. This little thing we have in our pocket. It makes all kinds of funny noises. <laughs> and it's actually dead. It says, don't, don't uh, consult the dead on half of the living. This is a dead, inanimate object. But how often do I, does it chirp or mutter and I pull it out and say, well, what does it have to say today? I need to Google that. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. Let me Google it. Right? And I'm not saying Google's a bad thing. It's a great tool. But how often do we go to this? How often do we let... This shape what we think about the world and how we step through and walk through this life, perhaps social media. We go to it, we post something, and we want to see what all other people think about that post. We're looking for counsel, aren't we? We let that shape us. We let the news and the things we read, whether we even know it's true or not, and it shapes us and that functionally serves as our counsel. And our reality can be warped without us even knowing it. Perhaps you have someone in your life, or maybe you know someone who uh, has suffered from or suffers from PTSD. Maybe you know someone, maybe you have someone in your life. Military, veteran, first responders. There's people that have dealt with PTSD for various reasons. Trauma that has happened to them. Can I first say, Seek to know them and love them and understand them in that. I went to seminary with a guy who was a retired Marine Corps uh, for 27 years in the Marines, and he commanded a unit that was uh, called the EOD, Explosive Ordinances Division. And his job on his tours of duty was to go and find the IEDs and dispose of them. Can you imagine the level of anxiety and stress that you sort of have to operate at normal day-to-day life to do your job. Say, let's find these things that they're trying to blow us up and kill us and get rid of them so the rest of the guys don't have to hit them. They're operating at this sort of level. You know, these guys get shot at, blown up, watch their buddies die, and then they say, all right, now you've served your time. You can go home and live a normal life. It's really hard for these guys that have experienced these things. I was uh, listening to the story of one guy who said he, he got pulled over one time because he had swerved in the road, and he couldn't bring himself to tell the officer why he had really swerved. He just said, well, I got tired, and I was drowsy, and I swerved off the road for a minute. He was afraid to admit that he, had a, he was struggling with the issue of he saw a bag in the road, and he thought it was an IED. And he swerved. But he couldn't bring himself to say that I have a problem. I'm really struggling with this. You see how PTSD can warp your view of your reality. Now, what about us? What things warp our reality? I, I suspect that the entire human race is functioning in spiritual PTSD. 
you see what I mean. And I think the PTSD, though, the trauma, was self-induced in this case because we rebelled against our God. And it warped our entire reality. When Adam and Eve heard the snake talk, it was jarring. When they believed him, when they believed the lie, it broke. Something broke in us when we rebelled against our God. Our reality was warped by the rebellion against our very created DNA. When we said, I think I can figure this out without you, God. I think I can do this life without you. I'll eat of the knowledge, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and I'll figure it out on my own. But we were never made to do that. And so it warps our reality. And when we think that, we have to look out for ourselves, right? If we say, thanks, God, but I'll take care of this, then guess who has to look out for me? Me. And you have to look out for you. If that's the reality, if that's how we're living, we have to look after self. And we find that functionally we're always looking around the corner expecting someone or something to get us. We always live in this functional fear, maybe thinking, I don't know if I'll ever have enough. I don't know if I'll ever have enough money. I don't know if I'll ever have enough uh, toilet paper. (laughs) Seems to be a hot commodity this year. Whatever it is, we think, I'll never, I got to get it while the getting's good because I'll never have enough and I got to take care of me because I don't think anybody else really is. I don't, I don't, I'm disbelieving that God is caring for me. Perhaps always looking for conspiracy where there might not be any. We're more worried about our own rights than that of the, the others around us. Sometimes it's easier to love a cause if it's a cause that we like than to love another person. And what happens is what we see that that, that chapter 9, this passage, is actually promised to undo. When we look after self, when everyone is looking after self, then we slip into this reality of oppression And conflict, verse 4 and 5 describe that being undone by this promised child. Right? If I've got to look after me and you've got to look after you, that's where oppression comes from, isn't it? We look around this world and and we see it. We look around this world and we see conflict. We see it in our own country this year. We're so divided. Because we're all functionally operating in this place of, I think, I know what's best. And if they over there would just listen to me, or vice versa, we see our country in that state. And it's inevitable that we will see verses 4 and 5 lived out, or the the things that are being promised to be undone, the, the yoke of burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, the boot of the tramping warrior, These are all things describing oppression and conflict and war and destruction. And it comes from the human heart within that says, I've got to take care of me because I don't believe God is. That's the the fallen human condition that we inherited. Now, maybe you feel like I've thrust us all into that thick darkness with this perspective. But I think we have to feel it to know our true need. But praise be to God that he doesn't leave us in that thick darkness. Because he shines the light. The wonderful counselor comes in and shines light 
on the fact that we are trying to function in the darkness of our own counsel. He shines a light. Now I want to consider, I want to put before you a few things to consider with this wonderful counselor, who he is and what he does. Four things, okay, four things about this wonderful counselor. For one, look at verse one with me again. There's some odd sounding names there of places. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now, maybe you're scratching your head like, ah, what, where, who is that, where is that? Maybe rings a slight bell for like, oh, is that something in the Old Testament? Those were tribes of Israel, and they were up in the north. Now, it might give it away as you go on down and see the Galilee, and we think, oh, Galilee, yeah, that's, that was where Jesus spent a lot of time, right? It's true, that's, Zebulun and Naphtali were the tribes of the north, Now, they were the ones that got trampled over time and time again after every time Syria would come in and conquer, Assyria comes in and conquers. All these nations were fighting over this land. They were going back and forth, back and forth. And those were the first people to get hit. You know, as you see verse 5 there, the boot of the tramping warrior, those people groups up there, they knew it. They would have read that and be like, yeah, that's us. We're getting trampled over all the time. We're getting conquered. We're, we're taken away as slaves. We're being brought here and there and everywhere, and we've forgotten even who we are. They forgot even that they belonged to God, that they were God's people. They were the furthest out. Judah would have thought of them as the outcast, the really messy folks that got taken away, and now they've just sort of been blended in with the nations, the Galilee of the nations. It's like they're not even a part of us anymore. The furthest out. But here's the thing about the wonderful counselor. That's where the light shined first. It says, on her who was in darkness and anguish, light has shined. The wonderful counselor goes wherever he must to reach the furthest out, most messy broken sinner. Okay, maybe we're sitting here this morning and we're looking around like, well, I don't see a lot of messy, broken sinners. I know myself, and if anybody knew what was going on in here and here, they'd run from me if they saw my mess, but everybody else seems like they're okay. We're all thinking the same thing, actually. And Jesus, the Messiah, the wonderful counselor, goes wherever he must to get you, to shine light into your darkness. I love the, uh, the more I learn about uh, the ministry of young life, the more I love it. And one of their missions as a ministry is uh, to reach the furthest out kid. So one of the missions of young life is to reach the furthest out kid. The furthest out kid is not the one who's sitting in the front pew of church every Sunday and lives the cleanest life, avoiding the parties at all costs. The furthest out kid is broken, sins, and doesn't have it all together as none of us really do. We're all the furthest out when it comes to our standing before God apart from Christ. But the wonderful counselor comes after us and shines light into our darkness. So that's that's one thing about the wonderful counselor. We could go on and on about that. 
Well, let me take us to something else. What about, and that's the, the wonder of it. That's the marvel of Christ, by the way. When you see in the Gospels, like for example, when he goes to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, and he's talking with her, the disciples come back and they're like, they're, they marvel. It says in there, they marvel that he was talking to her. Like, what, what's Jesus doing talking to a Samaritan woman? But Jesus said he, he, goes, he goes after the furthest out. That's what's wonderful about Christ, the wonderful counselor. Let's go on, though, okay? What, about, what does a counselor do? I, I, think, I think everybody needs counseling, by the way. I think we're all, <laughs> we all need it. But what does a counselor do? If you've ever been to one, what do they do? They ask you questions, right? They try to draw out what's on the inside. And they usually are good at asking questions. Well, a great counselor does that. Do you know Jesus was far more likely to ask a question than to give an answer? So often he would answer a question with another question or maybe tell a story or a parable. Isn't that interesting? Christ didn't come and condemn. He saw a situation and he had a way of asking questions to draw out what was on the inside. It's sort of like a counselor takes a mirror and shows back to you what came out of the inside of you and lets us see it for what it is. And he shows us himself. Proverbs 20 verse 5 says, The heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding draws it out. I think that's Christ. He is that man of understanding. You see verse 4 and 5, we go back there, it talks about oppression. It talks about uh, conflict being overrun and overturned. And we would think that maybe if, you, if, if you've never read this passage before, you'd think that verse 6 would start with, uh, not for unto us a child is born as the answer to these problems, but surely it should say a more powerful warrior is sent to conquer everyone. Surely a, a conquering king will be crowned and given to us. This is no a child. Jesus, gentle and lowly. Remember when Jesus was, uh, had fed the 5,000 and the people were so excited about that, they said, let's make him our king. And he says, no, 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 no. I'm not that kind of king. And he goes away. They're thinking, hey, we can now conquer Rome. This guy's got power. Let's go get him. And Jesus says, no, 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 not that kind of kingdom. Not that kind of king. The wonderful counselor has a way of flying under the radar of our prejudices to win our hearts. Not just conquer and overpower, but transform us from the inside out. That is what the wonderful counselor does. That is how oppression is ended. That is how conflict is, is ended. Not by overpowering it, but by transforming us on the inside. So the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. The commentator says he does not come to govern us against our wills, but more power, by, by powerfully inclining our wills, raising them out of where we have them captivating our hearts again i could go on that's just there's beauty in this the wonderful counselor wins our hearts over but also the wonderful counselor is wise simply that he is he's 30 is wise 
but not just, not just a wise teacher. Um, there's commentators that talk about how there's, there's been uh, scholars and theologians over the years who have tried to actually take away the attributes of God uh, that are applied to this promised child in this passage. Some of the Jewish commentators do that so that it's, it takes away the, the, uh, the attributes of God on this promised child. You see, we actually functionally do that too. The world does that. We see Jesus and we say, hey, he was a great guy. He had some good teaching. Maybe we should listen to some of that. But he doesn't actually leave us with that option. Jesus didn't just say, hey, I'm a good teacher. I'm a wise guy. You should listen to some of my stuff. Because if that's all it is, then we can take a little bit of what he says, and we can take a little bit of uh, Confucianism over here, and a little bit of this over here, and a little of that over here, and we can put it all together. And functionally, we've just created our own council again. Right? Jesus doesn't leave us with that option. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The one. (laughs) If he is that, he must be the source of wisdom. The source of all counsel. That must be true. Either he is God or he is not. And we have to respond to that. That claim. Jesus is something altogether different than just another wise man. People were amazed. Again, if we talk about wonderful counselor, the wonder of him was the fact that people saw him and what he did, the signs he performed, the miracles he performed, and then his teaching, and they said, wow, what is this new teaching with authority? This is different. Who is this guy? The wonderful counselor is God himself, the source of all wisdom. One more thing to put before you about the wonderful counselor You see, a wonderful counselor will show you the way even though he knows you may not follow it. Think about the grace of that. Jesus knows everything about us. He knows all that we have done and will do. And he pursues us even though he knows that sometimes we're just not going to listen. I know if I knew that with someone else, with my kids, for example, I'd be like, why am I wasting my energy right now? They're not even doing what I'm saying. But God is so gracious to continue to pursue us, to pre- present to us the way. You know, Isaiah was a prophet sent to a people where God said, hey, you're going to go to the talk to these people and they're not going to listen to you. How about that for a job? How frustrating would that be? Jesus was sent to his own people and his own people rejected him. You know, think of the, the rich young ruler. When, G, when the rich young ruler came to Jesus, said, hey, well, what must I do to be saved? And, you know, it's almost like he's like, can I be a part of your, your posse? Can I be a part of your group? Jesus said, mm, sell everything you have and follow me. And he's like, oh, I didn't know you were going to ask me that. Jesus shows him the way, even though he knew that he would reject it. Because the rich young ruler's counsel seemed more important. Jesus asks us the same question. He says, do, do you want to see what's in your blind spot? For the rich young ruler, it was his stuff, right? It was, possession, it was possessions. And Jesus said, oh, let me move that for a minute so you can actually see what's going on in your heart. And he says, do you, do we 
want to know what's in our blind spot? Do you want me to show you this way? What will be our response? You see, this promised child flips everything over on its head, or, depending on your perspective, puts it right side up. He changes everything. The counsel of his kingdom is like the parable Jesus tells of the the Pharisee and the tax collector. Go to the temple to pray, and the Pharisee says, Hey, I thank you, God, that I'm such a great guy. I do this, I do that. I'm not like this tax collector over here. Aren't I a great guy? Then the tax collector's way off, broken, leaning over to the ground, saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, That's how my kingdom works. He goes away justified, not the guy who thinks he's got it together. This child flips everything over on its head. He says, that's my counsel. That's what the wonderful counselor does. It shows us the way that is opposite of what we often think. He asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? He asks us that. Who do you say that I am? Will you follow me? Or do you want to leave me also? I ask you and I together this morning, will you truly hear the wonderful counselor and respond to him? You know why I think that learning about the rods and cones and the human eye stuck with me for so long? I think it was because the people who taught me that didn't just tell me. They showed me. They, they actually created an environment for me to discover it for myself, to go out there in the woods and look and, you, look and see that blind spot in my uh, night vision and say, look, you see it? There it is. If they had just explained rods and cones in the eyeball, I'd be like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't get it. But they showed me. How gracious is our God, the creator of all things, who condescends, comes down to us and creates an environment for us to discover what we, what's really going on in here. He opens our eyes. He opens our ears. He gives us sight to see our own sin, our desperate need of him, and then shows us his light. What a wonderfully gracious God. So I leave you with this question this morning. Have you, have you discovered the darkness of your own counsel? Has God opened your eyes to see it? And has he shown you the light of his son Jesus, the wonderful counselor? If he has, then I invite you to lean back into him again this Advent season and celebrate him, delight in him. If you have not seen those things, I invite you to wrestle with the truth of the gospel. Wrestle with what is in this passage this morning and going forward, that you might be able to surrender to Christ, to surrender and give up the darkness of our own counsel and surrender to his wonderful counsel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, as we have seen in your word this morning, that you did not leave us in darkness You did not leave us to try to figure this out on our own because you knew what it would lead to, destruction, oppression, conflict. 
brokenness, ultimately separation from you forever, but you and your kindness and graciousness pierce the darkness with your son Jesus, with the promised child, the wonderful counselor. The Lord, help us to surrender to his counsel, to his wisdom, to his light for your glory and our good. Amen.